The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. In some ways, in a lot of ways, Easter is so incredibly simple. Easter provides us as Christians the basis of our faith, the foundation on which we stand. Paul puts it so plainly in 1 Corinthians 15, which is the passage that this sermon is going to be centered on. He writes that if only for this life we have hope, then we of all people are most to be pitied. But, he says, and that, that's the hinge that our life rests upon, that big, big but. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. It is true. Now, throughout all of Lent, we've been talking about fruit. How our lives uh, in the gospel move, are invited to move from barrenness to fruitfulness, from emptiness to to fullness, from scarcity to generosity. And this continues in this passage as Paul kind of gathers up everything that we've been talking about through Lent and packages it together for us in the resurrection of Jesus. What Paul is saying here is that it isn't just enough to know the resurrection of Jesus to be true for the future. To be this thing that we know we will eventually, you know, everyone's going to die. We're all, then we're going to go to heaven. No, 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 no. For Paul, the resurrection is a present reality in our lives. It is the first fruits that we taste. Now, a few years ago, I received a wonderful gift from a friend. This person, I think, had won these, these tickets, but they invited me to join them on January 1st, 2017, to the NHL Outdoor Centennial Classic at BMO Field. This was epic, right? Leafs versus Red Wings, and the Leafs won. But before the game began, all I had to cling to was a ticket. You know, it wasn't just, uh, you know, completely, you know, uh, outside of my own physical reality thing that had been promised to me, this, this seat at this game. It was a ticket. It was, a, it was something real, something that I could hold in my hand. And I tell you, when I received that ticket, there was an extra hop in my step for about a month, right? I was a happier person. I was more patient. I was more generous. No, I'm just kidding. It was... There were limits to this. However, there was a first fruit. And this is what Paul is getting at here. Paul is saying that the resurrection does matter when we see it, not just something for the future, but something for our present. And so what I want to do this morning is try to build this case for how we can grab hold of the resurrection life right now. What are some things, what are some ingredients that need to go into this recipe of resurrection confidence? Three things that Christ is our representative. Christ is our condemnation. And Christ is our substitute. 
Christ is our representative. So the first thing that Paul does in verses 21 and 23 of 1 Corinthians 15 is to tell us that Christ is our representative. Now, a few months ago, some of us got really into watching the Olympics. How many of us really got into it a few, few months ago, right? And some of you even woke up at absolutely obscene hours to catch these events live. Good for you. That person was not me. Now, when an athlete goes to the Olympics, one of the most fascinating things is that they don't just represent themselves, right? They put on the colors. They put on the jersey, the outfit, whatever it is, right? When they march into the opening ceremonies together, they do so representing a country. And in a really real sense, they're actually not at these Olympic Games on their own. And I think that if you asked an Olympian, that would be one of the most special things, is that they get to represent their country in front of the world. Paul talks about this in this passage in two different ways here in these first few verses. First, he talks about us in Adam. He points back to the creation of the world in Genesis, saying that Adam wasn't just a person— Adam represented humanity. He sported the human colors in his existence. And one Bible person says it like this, Adam is for Paul both an individual and a corporate entity. He is what his Hebrew name signifies. Adam literally means humankind. The idea of being an individual and a corporate identity is a little interesting in our current cultural moment. See, right now there is a lot of emphasis being put on individuality. Some have described our time as one of expressive individualism, where each person is encouraged above and beyond to be true to themselves, to be their own unique person. And there is beautiful aspects of this idea. But there's also the, the, it's not as true as we like to think of it. Often we are far more connected to one another, far more hardwired than we like to admit. I don't know about you, but when I find myself acting in ways that don't make sense to me or that I don't like, I'm quick to jump on some popular idioms, such as, it's just the water I swim in. Or, blame my parents, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Or, like father, like son. In very real ways, we represent the people who come before us. The people who gave birth to us. The people who helped raise us. There is in all of us an individual and a corporate entity. And this is what Paul is pointing out to us in Adam, is that Adam represents humanity. But Adam isn't quite a good look for us, is he? No. No, Adam, Paul says, is the the entity who brought on death. He took that fruit and he ate it. He decided, Adam and Eve decided to trust themselves and not to trust God. But Paul doesn't just 
see, show us that Adam is our representative, but that Christ is also our representative too. As a human being, Christ represents us in exactly the same way. Some theologians even refer to Christ as the second Adam. So Jesus also sports the colors of humanity and does something that none of us can do, right? Through Adam came death, but through Jesus Christ comes life, comes resurrection. Going back to the Olympic image, one of the coolest parts of the Olympics is that a part of us lives with these athletes in a very real way. If an athlete wins a medal, then we don't necessarily say that they won a medal, but that Canada won a medal or that Finland won a medal or that Jamaica won a medal. It's the, the whole corporate identity and the individual that receives the prize. And in the same way, Christ accomplishes for us something that we could never accomplish for ourselves. None, I'm pretty confident that none of us here will ever win an Olympic gold medal. And yet we do share as fellow Canadians in the medals that are won. Christ has accomplished for us the resurrection and it is a first fruit for us as humans too however paul does qualify this it is not simply that we can uh, that because of our humanity that we share in christ's resurrection there is a phrase that he attaches he says if we belong to him that this is for us and this phrase comes from military words if we belong to him, evokes um, order and rank. The word belong, oftentimes in the Greek, is referring to, you know, um, being under the authority of someone else. As I was thinking about this phrase, you know, that the resurrection is for us if we belong to Christ, it reminded me of the Disney movie Miracle that tells the story of the 1980 USA Olympic hockey team that, against all odds, um, won. But there's a great scene in this movie where their coach was, you know, it was after an exhibition game, and he was so frustrated with the way that the players were playing because they had themselves in mind. They were playing with the names on the backs of their jerseys in mind. And so after the game, he makes them skate lines back and forth, back and forth, and they're exhausted, and they're tired, and they're gasping for breath. And he keeps telling them over and over and over again, the name on the front of the jersey is more important than the name on the back. This is what it means to belong to Jesus, to be part of his team, to submit to his authority in your life. We have to come under his rule. What is more important on your jersey? Is it the name on the front or is it the name on the back? Who do you orient yourself to? Is it the name on the front or the name on the back? Christ is our representative. He sports our colors. And this comes with an invitation to belong to him, to identify with him and to submit to his leading. And seeing Christ as our representative leads us also to see him as our condemnation. Now, I know condemnation sounds like a harsh word, but trust me, it is a good news word too. Seeing Christ as our condemnation moves our hearts toward faith, 
to see the first fruits of the resurrection life in us, we, we also have to see that Christ condemns us. See, most of us try to avoid this in our life. Most of us try to avoid that sense of feeling condemned or needing to repent or turn away from certain things in our lives. And we try to do this as little as possible. And Christianity is a little bit unique. It's a lot unique in the way of the religions of the world. Most of the time, repentance means we've gone off track. We, we, repentance means that we have done, we've done something wrong, but that we're not even close. Whereas in the Christian faith, it is a, a faith of repentance. We will continually be in a pattern of repentance until the day that we die. Christians understand the role of repentance differently. Now, this is because Jesus came not to sing kumbaya and sit around the campfire. He came to do battle, to do battle with sin and death, to establish his rule as king of the world, and to call all things to account. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 tells us that the end will come when Jesus hands over the kingdom to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Jesus came to do war with the things of this world and to defeat them and to hand them to his Father. We can quickly go to other places in the scripture that talk about Jesus coming to establish a rule and a reign, his authority on earth. We can go back to the beginning of Jesus' life and see that the angel Gabriel, when, when talking to Mary, said that Jesus is going to come and God will give him the throne of his father David. He came to be a king. We can go to the Revelation at the end of all things where John writes that they will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. When we go to the Psalms, we hear language of what type of kingship, what type of rule Jesus will establish. The message version of Psalm 89 describes it like this. The right and justice are the roots of your rule. Truth and love are its fruits. My point is this. If Jesus is the king of the world, if the right and justice are the roots of his rule, if love and truth are its fruits, how can we be a part of this kingdom? I don't know about you, but I find myself fighting against this idea more often than participating in it. I identify with Tim Keller when he describes sin like this. He says, all sin is fighting God, seizing his authority, and trying to take his place. He goes on to suggest that we must all acknowledge that in every wrongdoing, we are actually making ourselves enemies of God. And so as we consider this passage in 1 Corinthians, as Jesus will hand over to his Father the kingdom after he has dominion over everything, where does that leave us? If we base our resurrection fruit on the pattern of holiness in our own lives, in our ability to be righteous and holy and just people on our own, we will all stand condemned when the fullness of the kingdom comes.
And this is good news. We need to see Christ this way so we can step off the throne in our lives, so that we can recognize his power and authority. And that every time we do this, every time we confess, every time we repent, we are indeed stepping closer and closer to the kingdom of God in our lives. I love how Phil prayed. In in his prayer, he mentioned that Christ already holds all things together. And so when we take an opportunity, when we humble ourselves and step off the throne in our lives, when we repent and confess to God that we often get it wrong, we can also confess that Christ is the one who holds all things together and not us. When Christ holds all things together, the weight comes off. When Christ holds all things together, we can participate with him instead of leading the charge. And I so love the communion liturgy that we've been using this season of Lent because it invites us to ask that very important question, right? What right do we have to dine at the table of the Lord? What right do we have to participate in God's kingdom? And we answer in a weird way. We say, we have every right. But why? Why? Is it because of us? No. We stand condemned. Why do we have this right? Because Christ came not for the strong, but for the weak. For those who have no excuses left. Stop running yourself into the ground. Trying to please God and earn resurrection. See Christ as your substitute. See Christ as your substitute. This is the last point. Verse 26 of of 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For some of us, this is a very real and very raw verse. We know that death is an enemy, and we know it hasn't been fully destroyed yet. There is pain and grief that strikes us and that haunts us. N.T. Wright puts it like this. He says, To say that death is anything other than an enemy is to deny the goodness and the beauty and the power of God's good creation. Death is an enemy. One of my friends posted on Facebook yesterday saying that Easter morning begins with a woman at a tomb crying. And it reminds us that Easter morning is for anyone who has ever done the same. But most commentators also agree that Paul is clearly not saying that death has not been defeated. Death, indeed, has been defeated. That is why we are here. That is why we gather as people together to praise and proclaim the name of God because he has defeated death. Because when the women came to the tomb, he wasn't there. He had walked out on death. Christ represents us and our humanity. Christ condemns us in our own righteousness, but Christ went to death as our substitute. The perfect king stood before God, condemned on the cross, 
earlier in this letter that Paul writes, he points this out to the Corinthians by saying, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ is your substitute. He went there so that you don't have to. And so that we can proclaim what George Herbert, a great hymn writer, who said, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. Or as the Heidelberg Catechism says, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us for our blessed resurrection. So the truth is that that NHL ticket image that I shared at the beginning of this sermon didn't go far enough. Because we have far more than just a piece of paper in our hands reminding us that there's a resurrection for us to wait and look forward to. We have the Spirit of God in us. The Spirit that changes us. The Spirit that renews us. And T. Wright also says this of Easter. He says, The message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that now you're invited to belong to it by his Spirit. This is the reality that we live in right now. We have the Spirit of God in us. And so we are like people who are grabbing at heaven and bringing it down to earth. Imagine how this changes your life. Think about this. When you have the gifts of the Spirit, it means you can care for people, counsel people, witness to other people, teach other people, build buildings and make plans and do things, do anything in a way that grabs at the reality of heaven and brings it down to life on earth. That's what the power of the Spirit does for us. The way that Christ invites us to join him in bringing the future into the present. We are people who do that right now. We have the first fruits of a greater reality to come. Imagine you received a check for $10 million that you could deposit at the end of the month. You knew the person was good for it. You knew that when it came to that day, you would cash that check and the money would be there. How would that change how you acted in the rest of that month? I think I would be a lot less stressed. I would be a lot more generous. I would be exploring new ways, creative ways, that I could use what I had. What if we actually believed that this is true? What if we believe that we had far more than a $10 million check waiting for us? The early Christians, I think, saw this so well. There's there's stories that go back to, um, you know, a plague that, that struck the Roman Empire that specifically hit cities, not unlike the way that COVID-19 has hit us in the past two years. When people were coming to grips with the reality of this pandemic in the early Roman Empire, they were realizing the severity of it, and they were getting out while they still could. Everyone except for the Christians. The Christians were the ones that stayed. The Christians were the ones that were grabbing at heaven, and they were trying their best to bring it down to earth. 
They were caring for people the way that God cares for us. They were praying for people. They were witnessing to the power of the gospel that is for all people who believe. What about us? Can we be the same witness in our world today? We are probably going to be looking forward into a time of conflict and challenge as a church body as we wrestle with some big, big issues. Let me ask you, First Hamilton, what does it look like for us as we move into this to recognize that Christ is already holding all things together? And so we can relax and we can look to heaven and we can make that a present reality in our church right now. Can we be characterized by the love of Christ? Can we clothe ourselves in humility? Can we listen to one another in love? Can we put into practice the fruit of the Spirit? right here, right now. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit as a first fruits of what's to come. Thank you that we can have confidence that you are our representative, that you though you condemn us, invite us to stop striving and to come to you to see that you have done what we could not. Father, as we wrestle and try to grab at heaven and bring it down to earth, we need your spirit to live in us to do this. Be with us that we may put into practice the rhythms of heaven right now that we may be bold in proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Amen.